Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Tuesday the 9th of August 2022. News. Extra £10 million to speed up cancer diagnosis and treatment. This article is by Helen McArdle. Health boards are to share £10 million to help cut cancer waiting times. The Scottish Government said the extra funding would speed up the delivery of endoscopy, radiology and chemotherapy by upskilling new staff, help to create extra clinics and boost the number of operations available. The cash is in addition to the £114.5 million National Cancer Plan and follows on from the £10 million allocated to health boards during 2020-21 to support the running of cancer services in the pandemic. The cash was used to deliver extra healthcare staff, additional weekend clinics and operations, as well as helping to create a brand new urological diagnostic hub in NHS Highland. Health Secretary Humza Yousaf announced the new £10 million fund while visiting NHS Forth Valley's Breast Cancer One Stop Clinic, which was paid for by the previous £10 million uplift. The service provided diagnostics for more than 5,000 additional breast patients from out with NHS Forth Valley during the pandemic and continues to see and treat 80 to 100 new patient referrals each week from the local area. Although NHS Scotland has continued to meet the 31-day standard, which stipulates that 95% of patients diagnosed with cancer should wait no longer than 31 days to start treatment, delays at the diagnosis stage have seen the 62-day target slip. The standard stipulates that 95% of cancer patients should wait no longer than 62 days between being referred for tests and beginning treatment once diagnosed, but this has not been met since 2012 and fell to a record low of 77% in the first quarter of 2022. By the end of March this year, over 5,000 patients had also been waiting over a year for one of the key diagnostic cancer tests, such as a colonoscopy, MRI or ultrasound. Mr Yousaf said cancer patients were waiting an average of four days to start treatment once a decision is made to treat, but added that we must move to improve our 62-day performance. He said COVID has not gone away and pressures remain, which is why we are providing health boards with a £10 million cash boost to drive down waiting times so that cancer patients can receive the best care as early as possible. However, Scottish Conservative Shadow Public Health Minister Tess White, MSP, 
said the £10 million fund would barely touch the sides, such as the scale of the problem. She added, the most recent official figures, the worst on record, show that almost a quarter of patients with an urgent suspicion of cancer did not begin treatment within 62 days. And this can't be blamed solely on the pandemic, as it's almost 10 years since the SNP met their own target of 95% of patients beginning treatment within two months. Early detection and treatment of cancer is crucial to patients' survival chances, so these unacceptable failings are creating a ticking time bomb that will inevitably lead to avoidable deaths. Like many of the problems in Scotland's NHS, this one can be traced back to poor workforce planning by successive SNP health secretaries, which has left dedicated frontline staff overstretched and unable to cope with the demands being placed upon them. This article is by Helen McCardle. The Herald, Tuesday the 9th of August 2022. News. SQA results. Huge drop in pupils taking higher languages and sciences. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. Scotland has seen a huge drop in the number of pupils taking modern languages, sciences and maths at higher level, figures published by the Scottish Qualifications Authority show. Just 505 students entered higher German in 2022, compared to 780 in 2020, while there were also significant falls in the numbers taking French and Spanish at higher level. Some 3,165 pupils took higher level French in 2020, with the figure dropping to 2,500 this year. In 2020, a total of 2,900 students entered higher Spanish, with the number falling to 2,465 this year. The reasons for the significant fall in pupils taking modern languages at higher level are not clear, but the issue of availability of language teaching in schools was considered in an inquiry by Holyrood's Education Committee before the pandemic. In 2019, a survey of teachers by the committee found languages were the most commonly mentioned subject as having seen a decline in uptake in the previous five years. Experts had previously raised concerns over the drop in the number of school higher language students, warning low expertise in foreign languages could have a negative impact in terms of the economy, with a declining number of Scots able to speak French, German and Spanish, which may be helpful in winning business deals overseas. The move also comes as the Scottish Government seeks to expand its presence in mainland Europe with a network of hubs in cities such as Paris, Berlin and Brussels, with the key aim of taking the country back into the EU as a new independent member of the bloc. Fewer pupils also entered higher English in 2022, with the number declining to 34,025 this year, compared to 36,370 in 2020. Sciences and maths also saw a fall in the number of pupils taking the subjects at higher level over the past few years, the SQA figures revealed. 
higher maths so 19,180 pupils enter in 2020 and 18,050 in 2022. In 2020, a total of 8,390 pupils entered higher level physics, while in 2022, the number fell to 8,045. Higher chemistry saw a drop of 10,040 pupils taking the subject in 2020 to 9,565 this year. Higher biology saw a drop from 7,430 in 2020 to 7,340. Overall, there was a 3% drop in students sitting higher exams than in 2021. However, despite the decrease, some subjects saw more pupils entering. Some 9,770 pupils took higher modern studies, an increase from 9,530 from the previous year, and the number entering computing science at higher rose from 3,165 in 2020 to 3,490 this year. At National 5 level, the nine most popular subjects were Modern Studies, English, History, Maths, PE, Physics, Chemistry, Biology and Application of Maths. Entries increased in all of these subjects. The most popular subjects at higher level were biology, business management, chemistry, English, history, maths, modern studies, PE and physics. Scottish Lib Dem education spokesperson Willie Rennie said, fewer languages taught limits young people's opportunities, hits the economy and hardly demonstrates an ambition for Scotland to be outward looking. Similarly, with STEM subjects, there are enormous opportunities for Scotland to be a world leader. We have a tremendously talented group of young people, but they will never achieve their potential when there is a shortage of teachers to aid and guide them and ignite that love of science. By failing to recruit enough trainee teachers in these key subjects, the Scottish Government is setting the country up for decades of failure. Scottish Liberal Democrats would give young people better access to expert teachers in STEM subjects by bringing back principal teachers for each of them and for every science. The Scottish Government have been approached for comment. As with so much in education, it is time the Scottish Government got its act together. The pace of change has been glacial. We need an action plan within a tight timescale to tackle these issues. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. From the Herald of Scotland, Wednesday the 10th of August 2022. Agenda. Richard Muir. No wonder Glasgow was voted 4th best place in the world to visit. Glasgow was recently voted Time Out's 4th best place to visit in the world 2022. Casual kindness and good humour were cited as top qualities for people, while the city's vibrant dining scene vast amount of green space and good value for money were praised as reasons to visit. It's accolades like this that build Glasgow's reputation globally as an authentic and accessible place and their business and leisure events offerings will make a massive contribution to the recovery of the economy post-pandemic. Glasgow's tourism sector continues to help drive the city's international image 
and is built around a strategy of attracting a diverse portfolio of international conferences and major sporting and cultural events. This is on top of key attractions, such as the world-renowned and recently reopened Borough Collection, supported by partners including Glasgow Life, which collectively will help to attract a legacy of investment. It's hard to believe that it has been eight years since Glasgow welcomed what the then President of the Commonwealth Federation, Prince Imran, described as the best ever Commonwealth Games, and generated some of our fondest memories and sporting achievements. Fast forward to Birmingham 2022, and the Scotland team have achieved an impressive sixth place in the medal table with, 50, with a 51 medal haul. Glasgow will soon host another significant sporting event. It's a year to go until the UCI Cycling World Championships, the largest cycling event held, ever held, with 8,000 professional and amateur riders from over 120 countries competing. Following in 2024, Glasgow will host the World Athletics Indoor Championships at Emirates Arena, which comes five years after the hugely successful European Athletics Indoor Championship in 2019. In addition, the World Pipe Band Championships make a welcome return to Glasgow Green this weekend and, of course, Glasgow, along with other UK cities, is now bidding to host Eurovision 2023. Glasgow has become a major destination in its own right, because of its hospitality and retail offering and with its diverse mix of the music, arts and cultural events and festivals and its willingness to experiment and deliver value for money. But these international competitions, hosted in our city, will yet again reinforce Glasgow's status as a world-class sporting and event city. With effective planning, governance and leadership, positive le- legacy effects are possible. For example, venues and housing were planned and developed with their end use and ownership already agreed including deliberate decisions that new and refurbished games venues would be multi-sport venues that could host both host major events and provide opportunities for the local community. This resulted in Scotland attracting international events and the venues being well used by local communities. Furthermore, The Athletes Village in 2014 is now home to hundreds of eco-homes which deliver a significant reduction in carbon emissions. The addition of a low-carbon community heating system, coupled with the use of a building fabric which retained heat, was also designed to accelerate the level of carbon reduction in homes by up to 95%, which is well below the average. COP26 also resulted in many sustainable benefits and legacies for the city, whilst also bolstering the business narrative for Glasgow. For instance, 15,000 square metres of carpet used at the 10-day event was lifted and fitted into 1,800 homes in the city through the government-based company Spruce Carpets, whilst Glasgow Wood Recycling reused 51 parts of wood for other uses, including events. Looking ahead, more than 1 million spectators are expected to attend the UCI World Championships in Glasgow and throughout Scotland, with over a billion watching on TV generating an estimated economic value of £67 million for the country, it puts the city in the shop window for tourism visits for years to come. The business of winning, staging and capitalising on international events is hugely important to Glasgow in so many ways. It will take on an even more significant role post-pandemic as we compete with other cities and reinforce our credentials as a world-class destination to live, work and visit. And that was an agenda piece by Richard Muir. 
Who is the Glasgow Chamber of Commerce Deputy Chief Executive? From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 11th of August 2022, from the news section, Wishaw Maternity Unit Midwives Frightened by Visitor Abuse? Report by Caroline Wilson. Midwives at a Scots maternity unit have been left frightened to go to work because of an unusual and sustained spike in abusive behaviour from the public. Cheryl Clark, Chief Midwife for NHS Lanarkshire, said staff at University Hospital Wishaw had been enduring daily abuse for months in an area ahead of the health service, not used to aggression. In one of the most serious incidents, a midwife was forced to retreat to the safety of a ward after she was followed by a visitor to a staff changing room and challenged over visiting restrictions. Managers had to call security to have the person removed and the unit has now been designated a high-risk area. The midwifery leader said she had never experienced abusive behaviour from the public on this scale in her 20-year career. It has led to staff taking leave and crying on shift, she said. She believes the rise in aggression may be linked to the frustration over the continuation of some COVID infection control mitigations in hospitals, including a requirement to wear masks. An increase in abuse directed at staff in other areas of the NHS, such as A&E, have been linked to patient frustration over lengthy waits, but is very unusual in maternity care, according to the midwifery leader. Midwives are frightened, she said. That is the word they are using. I started my training in 1999 and qualified in 2002 and it's fair to say that midwifery never got this level of abuse. We would maybe get some unhappy partners but very small complaints that were resolved very quickly. This is very very different and unusual. It almost feels like what happens in A&E because they get it quite a lot. It's not one or two incidents, it's over a long period. She said that initially staff started to experience abuse in the ultrasound rooms where visitor numbers were restricted for COVID safety. She said, We were getting vile abuse and actually members of the public were apologising saying, I'm sorry, we witnessed that. All because we were trying to adhere to safety. She said those incidents settled down but the aggression was then focused on staff and in postnatal wards where efforts are made to try to stagger visitors. Security was called after a midwife was threatened by a family member after she asked a group of six to wind up their visit. She was at the end of her shift and went to the staff changing rooms, said Ms Clark. She was followed there and when she came back out they were still standing there waiting for her. So she had to go back into the ward and security were on the scene very quickly. She said she had disclosed the incident because she felt it was important that the public understood what staff in the unit were experiencing. She said, we've got single rooms and we have bays in the, and in the bays it's four women and visitors were sneaking, were sneaking in fives and sixes and midwives were trying to manage it. The health board said the abuse had left midwives in tears on shift with some taking sick and leave on mental health grounds. She said, I think at the start it was, yes we can manage this, but it was getting to the point that the anxiety of it was affecting them. Certainly they're going to their charge nurses and saying, I'm struggling with this. The junior midwives are finding it particularly difficult to manage, she added. She said hospital security staff had been called to the maternity unit a number of times to protect workers. They don't stand outside the ward because it's a busy hospital, 
but they are now aware that we are one of the higher risk areas, she said. She said maternity wards like other areas of the NHS were desperate to get back to person-centred visiting, which means there are no restrictions on numbers, but this had led to wards becoming overcrowded at a time when COVID cases remain high. She said, we want everyone to be able to come in and have access to this newborn family, so we had said that the birthing partner can come in 24-7 and the second visitor can come in 9am to 9pm. But because of that, they were all coming in in bursts. The unit has now implemented an appointment system where the second visitor is restricted to two hours per day and by appointment only, and managers hope this will lead to a reduction in aggressive incidents. She said, The last two years have been difficult for society and of course the NHS had to go into a different level of access. That's extremely difficult and we recognise that. Some of the feedback we are getting from families is that society is getting back to normal and masks are not in use and social distancing is not there, but healthcare still has policies in place. I think that is frustrating for the public. Why should they wear a mask? Why are there limits around their bedside when everything is back to normal? I could go to a nightclub tonight and we could all be together. You could go to a supermarket, go on a plane, but we can't be all together here. She said the support from the community had been phenomenal after the health board released a video urging the public to respect maternity staff and said there had been no recent incidents reported. She said the appointment system was not a long-term measure but was necessary in view of the severity of the attacks. Figures show there were 12,500 cases of both physical assault and verbal abuse inflicted on NHS Scotland staff last year. More than 7,000 workers suffered physical attacks, whilst a total of 5,496 reports of verbal abuse and threats were logged. NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde was among the worst affected, with 2,479 assaults and threats recorded in the first six months of 2021, and also noted close to 100 attacks in the first eight days of August. Another Freedom of Information request this time by by the British Medical Journal, BMJ, revealed that police are recording an average of three violent incidents at GP surgeries across the UK every day. Doctors told of angry patients breaking doors down and threatening to stab them. While attacks on hospital staff have also increased, doctors say there is a different dynamic in GP surgeries, which are smaller and do not have the same security arrangements. And that was a report by Caroline Wilson. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 11th of August 2022, from the news section. It shocked the place to the core. Highlands community reacts after attacks. By Herald Scotland Online. Armed attacks which led to the death of one man and left several others injured have shocked a Highlands community to its core. SNP MP Ian Blackford said. A 47-year-old man died following a spate of incidents on the Isle of Skye and in the Dorna area of Wester Ross on Wednesday. An attacker, armed with a gun, also injured three other people who were in hospital. The suspect, a 39-year-old man, has been arrested in connection with all of the incidents which police said they believe are linked. Mr Blackford, MP for Ross, Sky and Lochaber said he was one of the many in the community who were horrified by the attacks. 
Speaking in the aftermath of the incidents, he said, For people to hear the news of today's incidents would have taken place on three separate occasions. I think it's really shocked the place to the core. It shocked people that this sort of thing can happen. It's a terrible, terrible day that these things have come to Skynlochalsh. It takes some time for some of these communities to recover from this and it's really important that we make sure all the support is there for the families. Scotland's Finance Secretary Kate Forbes described the news as one of the worst days that I can recall in the history of Sky in Loch Alsh. The MSP for Sky, Loch Aber and Badenoch, who gave birth to a baby girl last week, said, West Highland communities are close-knit, we are warm and welcoming, and this will shatter us to the core. It feels like our very heart has been ripped apart. I, and I'm sure many others, never thought we would see such an awful day. The first attack happened at a property in the Tartskaveg area of Skye shortly before 9am on Wednesday. Police found a 32-year-old woman with serious injuries who was then taken to Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow. About half an hour later, gunshots were reported at another property in the Tiang area of the island, about 8 miles away, where the 47-year-old man was pronounced dead when emergency services arrived. The violence then spread to the mainland, where there was another gun attack in Dorney. A man was found with serious injuries and taken to Rigmore Hospital in Inverness for treatment, and a woman, whose condition is unknown, was taken to Broadford Hospital. Local resident Gordon Matheson, who lives in Tongue, said the day had been profoundly difficult for the community. Families have suffered tremendous loss today, he said. Sky councillor John Finlayson described the news as tragic for the community. He said, I know how close-knit and big-hearted the communities in Sky and Lochalsh are, and we will come together to support each other through this devastating time. I would like to thank the emergency services for everything they have done and continue to do, and our thoughts and prayers are with all the families that have been affected by the events of today, which have hit everyone in our community so hard. Speaking to Good Morning Scotland on Thursday, Mr Finlayson added, I've never known tragedy like this, and there's two communities affected here, one in Skye and one in the mainland. I don't think anyone in Skye or Lochalsh would have expected that. From what I hear, there are a huge number of ambulances, police, fire service and helicopters in the area. Everyone was really alarmed. A lot of people didn't appreciate what was happening. Now that we're more aware of the tragic circumstances, I think everyone is still in shock and it is unbelievable. It's a sad day, it's a tragic day and a very tough day for us all. Another local councillor, Drew Miller, said the firearm incidents shocked not just Sky and Lachalks, but the entire Highlands. He said Highland Council has sent trained staff to support the affected families. Local Tory councillor Rod, Rod Rory Stewart said Sky and House is a very close, resilient community which is shocked and saddened by today's incidents. My heart breaks for the families involved in today's tragic events, he said. My prayers are with the bereaved family and the victims who are in hospital with serious injuries. I would like to thank the emergency services and the staff of Highland who have supported the families involved. Wester Ross Councillor Liz Craft said, I'm devastated and shocked at what has happened. 
Our communities will be heavily impacted by this and we will do all we can to support them through it. On behalf of Highland Council, Convener Bill Lobin said, We will be providing support to the communities and their partners in every possible way. He thanked the emergency services for stopping the attack from spreading further than it did. And that report was taken from the Herald Scotland Online. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 12th of August 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Festival Opera Review. Fidelio. Usher Hall, Edinburgh. Four Stars. By Keith Bruce. Festival Opera. Fidelio. Usher Hall, Edinburgh. Keith Bruce. Four Stars. As in the seasons of many opera companies, including Scottish Opera, as well as at the BBC Proms, the Edinburgh Festival has had great success with concert performances of operas to augment the vastly expensive exercise of stage productions. This year is no exception, with Strauss's Salome and Handel's Saul to follow this closing concert in the festival residency of the Philharmonia Orchestra. Beethoven's soul opera Fidelio could be said to be ideal for such presentation, because it's all about the music, a sequence of set pieces for different combinations of singers, choruses and solo arias, and while undoubtedly political, not especially dramatic, so theatrical presentations of it are relatively rare. This version's sole concession to staging was in the costume of the women, a floaty off-the-shoulder number for Kim Lilly and Strebel as Marzaline, and jeans and work boots for Emma Bell as Leonore, disguised as the man of the title for the duration of the story. Already a singspiel with spoken German text, the addition of Sir David Pountney's English narrative delivered by Sir Willard White from a desk at the front of the stage made the whole tale easily comprehensible. Completing a trio of cultural knights involved, conductor Sir Donald Runnicles was the perfect choice to marshal all the forces on stage, a specialist in grand vocal music and always up for the big occasion. As an Edinburgh man, he was also one of the stars of the evening for a proper-sized EIF audience brackets, at last, close brackets, although White, who was doubling as Don Fernando and Bell, were cheered with equal enthusiasm. The English soprano was a late substitute for Jennifer Davis, and she sang magnificently, from her first solo, Ab Scheulicher, through to the work's heady quintet and choral climax, in a luxury lineup of soloists with American Clay Hilly as her imprisoned husband Floriston, and German Marcus Brook as Don Pizarro, it was Austrian-based Gunther Groisbach who took the other honours as Rocco, a huge characterful voice matched by a big personality. The chorus master of the orchestra's professional choir, Philharmonia Voices, is Aidan Oliver, who also directs the Edinburgh Festival Chorus, and there were a few familiar local faces amongst the singers, but special mention should go to the two voices in the step-out roles of Floriston's fellow prisoners, tenor Robert Lewis and bass Thomas Mole by Keith Bruce. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 11th of August 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Paperbacks. Frankie Boyle swaps comedy for crime with his debut novel by Alistair Mabbitt. Meantime. Frankie Boyle. Baskerville. £14.99. Writing a novel has come to be an almost obligatory rite of passage for comedians. Frankie Boyle long ago made the move into print with the humour books My Shit Life So Far and Work, Consume, Die and penned the graphic novel Rex Royd on his way to releasing his fiction debut. A crime thriller shot through with all the jaunty despair of one of his New World Order monologues. Meantime's protagonist and narrator, Felix Macavite, 
is a dishevelled and unrepentant drug fiend in his early 30s. In a previous life, Felix worked at BBC Scotland, listening to the hopeful pitches of creative media types before unceremoniously rejecting them. Brackets, thus allowing Boyle to slip in a pointed, the whole organisation existed almost entirely to stop Scottish programmes from being made. Close brackets. But he bailed out and resigned himself to a lifestyle consisting of bar work and drug abuse. One morning shortly after the independence referendum, he wakes to find police officer dragging him out of bed. His close friend Marina has been found murdered in a park, and to begin with, Felix is the prime suspect. Convinced that the police will make a hopeless job of tracking down her killer, Felix suggests to his equally debauched friend and neighbour, Donny, that they should try to investigate her murder themselves. We were the two people least suited to investigating anything, he explains, but with the right drug combinations, we could be whoever we had to be. Dropping a Valium for relaxed nonchalance and a little white upper for determination, Felix begins his gonzo murder inquiry, tracking down Glasgow-based crime novelist Jane Pickford in the hope that she'll be willing to help in paying a call on Marina's doctor, the eccentric David Chong, who turns out to be an old friend of Felix's, who has developed quite an imposing physique since they last saw each other. As he uncovers facts about his dead friend that he'd never suspected before, Felix begins to piece together a plot that seemingly involves the Justice Secretary, perverse relationships, heroin stolen from big-time drug dealers, a group of independence activists in Springburn, artificial intelligence and the theory cropping up at several points that we're all living in a giant computer simulation. How funny you'll find it depends on how much you enjoy Boyle's stand-up and TV work. But fans won't feel shortchanged. Boyle's imagination is on overdrive, with a rapid turnover of acerbic, scurrilous jokes, and you can sense him grinning wickedly as each is dispatched. When not flying off into tangents about leaf blowers or cryogenic suspension, the plot acts as a springboard for critiques of Scotland, its politics and media, its drug habits and its culture, brackets, or more usually, lack of it, close brackets, all tied up with Boylean flourish. I don't know if people will even remember the referendum with what's coming down the pipeline. It'll be a tricky tiebreaker in a pub quiz that takes place in the sex bunker of a pitiless regional petrol sultan. For all that he seems to be a mouthpiece for the author's dark world view, Felix is surprisingly likeable and not the misanthropic, borderline sociopath he might expect. He's actually quite loyal and compassionate. It's only when Boyle digs deeper into his backstory that we understand the pain that the drugs and sarcastic exterior are keeping at bay and the flashes of empathy that Felix has shown towards others now illuminate his own damaged self. Meantime proves that the dark heart of Mock the Week is a soft centre, even if you had to do a lot of chewing to get to it. By Alistair Mabbitt. The Herald, Friday the 12th of August 2022. News. This article is by Herald Scotland Online. The UK's economy shrank over the last three months as spending on test and trace and the COVID-19 vaccine programme subsided, figures show. Gross domestic product fell by 0.1% between April and June, the Office for National Statistics said. It is a big step down from the first quarter of the year when GDP, gross domestic product, rose 0.8%. The data may not be the start of a recession, which is defined as two quarters of GDP decline, but experts are predicting the UK will slip into a recession later this year. 
While we see increasing signs of underlying weakness in the economy, we expect a more severe downturn to take place only from towards the end of this year, said Yale Selfin, chief economist at KPMG UK. The downturn is likely to start next quarter, after Ofgem hikes the price cap on energy bills in October by an estimated 84% to £3,634, according to the latest predictions. The Bank of England has predicted that the economy will shrink in the final quarter of this year and then every quarter in 2023. The most recent drop came as GDP shrank by 0.6% in June and growth estimates for May were revised down from 0.5% to 0.4%. The ONS said the phasing out of spending on fighting COVID-19 was partly to blame for the contraction over the quarter. Health was the biggest reason the economy contracted as both the test and trace and vaccine programmes were wound down, while many retailers also had a tough quarter, said Director of Economic Statistics Darren Morgan. These were partially offset by growth in hotels, bars, hairdressers and outdoor events across the quarter, partly as a result of people celebrating the Platinum Jubilee. Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadim Zahawi, said our economy showed incredible resilience following the pandemic and I am confident we can pull through these global challenges again. I know that times are tough and people will be concerned about rising prices and slowing growth and that's why I'm determined to work with the Bank of England to get inflation under control and grow the economy. The government is providing billions of pounds of help for households with rising costs, including £1,200 for 8 million of the most vulnerable households. But on Thursday, Mr Zahawi and Prime Minister Boris Johnson refused to take any fiscal action after meeting with bosses of the UK's biggest energy companies. Following the meeting, they reiterated the support on bills which was announced months ago when the October price cap was predicted to reach just £2,800 in October. The latest predictions show the cap rising nearly £900 more than that in October and passing £5,000 in April. Any new support will have to be decided by the new Prime Minister, who will not be in place until early September, the government said. The cap rise is adding to inflation fears, with consumer price index inflation expected to top more than 13% in October, according to the Bank of England. And British Chambers of Commerce Head of Research, David Barrier, warned that businesses are also being hit by these growing costs. Since 2021, our research has been flagging the damaging impact of inflation. It is wiping out many firms' profit margins and threatening their long-term growth, he said. Supply constraints caused by global COVID lockdowns and conflict in Ukraine, coupled with soaring energy costs, 
have created a perfect storm that many small businesses are struggling to weather. He added, that's why it is becoming critical for the government to take action as soon as possible. They must immediately cut the VAT on businesses' fuel bills to 5%. The longer the economy is left to drift towards the danger zone, the harder it will be to rectify. This article is by The Herald Online. The Herald, Friday the 12th of August, 2022, News, Ukraine. Plan for second cruise ship on the Clyde. This article is by Caroline Wilson. A second cruise ship berthed on the Clyde could be used to house Ukrainian refugees arriving in Scotland, prompting concern from human rights campaigners. The Scottish Government is said to be considering chartering another ship in Glasgow after being forced to halt the super sponsor scheme for three months amid accommodation shortages and a surge in visa applications. The MS Victoria is currently serving as accommodation for families docked in Edinburgh, but welfare groups have called for refugees to be rehoused as soon as possible. The Herald understands that the government is also considering asking the army to house refugees in vacant personnel accommodation. The Scottish Government said no formal request had been made to the Ministry of Defence, but said it was exploring all options, and said the Edinburgh ship had received a very positive reception from the people on board. Robina Kwerishki, Chief Executive of Positive Action in Housing, said she was aware of plans to purchase a second ship in Glasgow. She said, we are concerned that it might end up being a longer term thing. The concern remains that hosts may have changed their minds. That is something that the UK government hasn't considered at all. We are concerned about a surge in homelessness arising because of arrangements falling through. If hosting is done the right way and expectations are managed, you have the potential for a relatively long lasting arrangement. She said the charity was also concerned about a backlash from the public that refugees are getting cruise ships to live in. She said it's just not the reality. When you see people on these ships looking very stressed and children who are bored, our concern is that people should not be living there for months on end because it will lead to depression and issues that we have seen amongst other refugees and asylum seekers. Gary Christie, Head of Policy at the Scottish Refugee Council, said it acknowledged cruise ships were a response to an emergency situation, but said it was seeking assurances from the SNP government that any temporary accommodations considered meets international standards for the reception of displaced people. Refugees are said to have told BBC reporters that they were impressed with conditions on the Edinburgh ship. In order to use army accommodation, the Scottish Government is required to submit a MACA military aid to the civil authorities' request. The move is considered a last resort measure when all others have been exhausted. The Scottish Government's suspension of the super sponsor scheme 
came a month after the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, said there were no plans to pause it. Under the scheme, people from Ukraine can apply for visas, removing the need for applicants to be matched to a host prior to being given permission to travel to the UK. Scottish Conservative Shadow Housing Secretary Miles Briggs said the decision to pause it was a classic example of the SNP over-promising and under-delivering. He added if they do go to the UK government requesting support from our fabulous armed forces and they admit they are exploring all options, it would be no surprise and further proof that the SNP's pursuit of positive headlines comes before the welfare of Ukrainian refugees. Critics of the scheme say the bureaucracy is horrendous. It is Whitehall, not Holyrood, which is responsible for funding. There is said to be frustration that local government has been left to do most of the heavy lifting with Ukrainians. The latest data shows that 11,990 refugees have arrived in Scotland with a Scottish sponsor, of which 8,880 have come under the government scheme. There has been 35,852 applications and 28,840 visas have been issued. A Scottish government spokesperson said, The Scottish Government is continuing to explore all options to ensure that there is sufficient and safe accommodation for displaced people from Ukraine arriving in Scotland. This includes the current passenger ship docked in Edinburgh, which has received a very positive reception from the people on board. The welfare of all displaced Ukrainians staying across the country remains the Scottish Government's absolute priority and we are seeing high numbers of displaced people arriving in Scotland through this successful super-sponsor scheme, the most per head of any of the four nations across the UK. Nearly 12,000 displaced people from Ukraine with a Scottish sponsor have now arrived, 15.5% of all UK arrivals. This article is by Caroline Wilson. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 12th of August 2022, from the sports section, Sore, sore night, Ross apologises to Dundee United fans as pride dented by AZ Alkmaar loss. By David Irvin, sports writer. Jack Ross apologised to travelling Dundee United fans after a nightmare in the Netherlands with AZ Alkmaar ending the Europa Conference League hopes with a 7-0 win. The Tannadice boss admitted it was a bruising night for United players and staff as they went down to a record level in European defeat in front of 1,300 away fans. Alkmaar were rampant on their own turf with United's one goal advantage wiped out before a further six goals were scored by the Eredivisie side. And Ross accepts his side deserve every bit of criticism levelled at them over the defeat after receiving huge praise for the first leg result. Speaking on BBC Scotland, he admitted, For every plaudit and praise we received in the aftermath of last Thursday, I think we deserve every bit of criticism we get on the back of that. We played against a good team at a tough venue, 
But we conceded six goals in 26 minutes between the first goal and the sixth one just after half time. That's not good, irrespective of the opponent. So what I would say is that to always level it at me, I'm broad-shouldered enough to deal with it in terms of preparation, selections, choices, etc. It was a tough, tough night for us. We didn't win fortuitously last week. I think we deserved to do so. It doesn't count for much. I think in the opening 20 minutes, we were okay. And even going up behind after the first goal, we obviously have the chance with Eden not long after it. With all the discipline we showed in our play without the ball last week, we didn't do as well, and we didn't deal with the period of adversity well in the first half. That's something we've got to be better at, irrespective of the opponent and the venue. The goals from our point, I think, were poor in terms of some of the decision-making involved in it. It's a sore, sore night for us. The players should feel sore. I feel sore, because your pride is very much not just dented, damaged by that. But we've got to dust ourselves down and get ready for the league game on Sunday. The 7-0 loss equaled Hibs' record loss to Malmo, and Ross admitted the history books will highlight both legs of the AZ Alkmaar clash. I've said to them in there, he explained, I said every bit of praise they got last week is in the history books, but so is this one. All they can do is affect what lies ahead and get themselves back in this competition and be better. It's not a night for excuses. It's a night for realism about the areas we fell short in today and it's a learning experience. They now realise how tough it is against the top teams. In any sort of adversary, you have to learn something from it and improve yourself after it and that's what we need to do as a group. Heads became foggy because, as I mentioned, they're a good team, and when they're up and their tails are up, and they're at it, then it becomes easier when they're ahead of the game, but we needed to be tougher in that period and get ourselves through. We didn't, and we became ragged and loose out of possession, never mind in possession. When you do that, you'll be, be picked off by good sides. The United squad will fly back to Scotland tonight, and Ross insists it should be a very quiet flight, as he stated this player should feel painful after the defeat. He added, It should be quiet. You should have that feeling in the pit of your stomach about how that feels. It should give you that nauseous feeling because we're serious about what we do, so when it goes like that, it will be painful. I would also like to apologise to the travelling fans, because we should be better than that, and have produced better than that but it will heighten their determination to get back to this level of football again, but then also, first and foremost, produce domestic results. We've got a tough one on Sunday, but all the messages and preparation has got to be about that. There's no point in us dwelling on tonight now. We've got to look forward and be ready to go then. And that article is by David Irvin, first published on Thursday the 11th of August. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 12th of August 2022, in the sports section. Rangers urged to buy Malik Tillman now by Scottish Germany football expert. By sports writer Ewan Payton. Rangers have been urged to make the transfer of Malik Tillman a permanent deal now. The USA International is on an initial one-year loan at Ibrox from Bayern Munich. 
The 20-year-old playmaker has made quite the impression at the Light Blues already. He scored the winner in Rangers 3-0 win over Union St. Gilles on Tuesday as Giovanni Van Bronckhurst's side progressed to the Champions League playoffs. He has impressive flashes against Livingston and Kilmarnock have also left fans and pundits excited for what impact he can have over the course of a season. Rangers hold an option to buy Tillman come next summer at the end of his loan. But Mark Fotheringham, who is assistant coach at Hertha, Blin- Hertha BSC in Germany, has urged Rangers to make the switch permanent as soon as possible. The ex-Dundee, Norwich and Fulham player told the Scottish Sun, I saw him play either flank and also through the middle and I thought he was outstanding. He had electric pace, was excellent in 1v1 situations, had quality link-up play and he could finish. I just thought, wow, he's top-notch. It was a couple of years ago and I said to our recruitment team, guys, he's a special talent, we've got to go for him. I love German football. I've played there and in recent years I've had some tremendous coaching experiences there. I always keep notes on players who catch my eye. I back my knowledge. I think I'm a very good judge. Ingolstadt got promotion to Bundesliga 2 and Tillman would have really strengthened us. They agreed with me but it wasn't possible for us to sign him. Now I see him making his name at Rangers and this is not exactly a shock for me. That winning goal against Union St. Gilles has really made the fans accept him. And good luck to Tillman. Rangers aren't going to recruit poor players. They'll have done their homework on him. And, with a Bayern Munich legend like Roy Mackay and Gino van van Broekhurst's coaching staff, then they have the perfect connection to bring him in. Bayern would have been happy to help out Mackay, I'm sure, but then they would have also been reassured by the coaching ability of van Broekhurst to develop Tillman. Have Rangers got a purchase option in a player? If they have, then I'd be amazed if they didn't take that up. Personally, I'd do it now. And that column was by Ewan Payton. The Herald, Monday the 15th of August 2022. News. Analysis. Covid Scotland. The strange viral consequences of lockdown. This article is by Helen McCardo. When the Covid pandemic grounded planes, closed borders and plunged whole swathes of the planet into months-long lockdowns and even longer periods of social distancing, there were plenty of warnings about unintended consequences. Excess deaths would increase. They have. NHS backlogs for non-Covid care would spiral. They have. Children would experience developmental problems as a result of socialisation. Research has found that infants born during the pandemic score lower on average for motor function and communication skills. Less talked about was the potential for the global pandemic response to disrupt other viruses in ways that we are only now beginning to realise. Some of this was expected, but some of it has been peculiar and surprising. Australia's record-breaking influenza season is one of the headline examples. After all, but vanishing for two years, cases began surging two months earlier than normal in April, and by the time infections peaked in mid-June, they were running around three and a half times the five-year average for mid-August, when influenza usually peaks in the Southern Hemisphere. 
The total number of cases reported up to the end of July at 2012-573 compares with 251,147 in the whole of 2017, until now Australia's worst ever flu year. A sudden rebound in flu was anticipated given that Australia fully reopened its borders in February and two years of waning immunity inevitably gifted the virus ample opportunity to spread. It remains to be seen whether the Australian experience is a bellwether for the UK's winter, but public health chiefs are spooked enough to be preparing for a potential onslaught from late September. The only bright spot is that the impact of flu on hospitals and mortality has been lower than it might have been. In 2017, there were 745 flu-related deaths in Australia, compared to 246 so far this year, suggesting that the form of the virus circulating back in 2017 was around three times more lethal. The median age for the patients who have died is 81, although most infections were actually reported in children and teenagers. At its peak, around 400 Australians were in hospital with flu in 2017, compared to around 200 at the height of this year's flu season. Less optimistically for frontline doctors already battling severe bed shortages on the NHS, however, is the fact that an average Australian flu season would tend to see only around 50 to 100 hospitalised due to the virus at any one time. Back in the UK, scientists have also been getting to grips with some of the more anomalous viral consequences of the pandemic. On Wednesday, the UK Health Security Agency announced an emergency rollout of polio boosts to children aged 1 to 9 in London amid concerns that a strain of vaccine-derived poliovirus, VDPV, is transmitting so far asymptomatically in the capital. It is not entirely unusual for surveillance to detect traces of VDPV in sewage. Typically around one to three samples a year will test positive, but in most cases there is no evidence of spread. In the current outbreak, there is enough genetic similarity between several of the London samples and samples found in Jerusalem and New York where a 20-year-old man has been left paralysed, to indicate that the virus has mutated away from its innocuous vaccine form into a neurovirulence type, which is transmissible and has the potential to cause paralysis or even death. If it seems confusing that a vaccine can, in very rare cases, morph into a potentially deadly virus, you need to understand that the vaccine concerned is the oral polio vaccine, which contains a weakened live strain of the virus and is given as droplets onto the tongue in countries such as Afghanistan and Pakistan, where polio is still endemic. This induces immunity in the gut where polio virus replicates, but also means that a vaccinated individual can excrete virus in their faeces, which can then spread through contact with contaminated surfaces in much the same way as the winter vomiting bug norovirus. 
Overseas visitors to the UK can import it in this way, usually without causing any problems. Exactly why the VDPV has become infectious this time is unclear, but one concern voiced by UK HSA scientists is that a dip in uptake for routine childhood immunisations in London during the pandemic may be one of the factors. To be fully protected, children should have had a three-jag primary course plus a booster, ideally before starting school. But in some of the London boroughs where the VDPV strain has been detected, most coverage is just 54%. The race is now on to build up a wall of immunity to contain it in the capital. Meanwhile, a mysterious global outbreak of paediatric hepatitis has been linked, indirectly, to COVID. Painstaking analysis, much of it by scientists in Scotland, have identified adeno-associated virus 2, AAV2, as the likeliest culprit. The sudden cluster of hepatitis cases coincided with an abnormal surge in adenovirus as COVID restrictions eased. AAV2 is a bystander virus. On its own, it can lie dormant in cells for years, but once in contact with adenovirus, becomes activated. Glasgow virologists found it in every one of the hepatitis youngsters they tested but not at all in any of the healthy control children used for comparison. Scientists believe that the unique circumstances of the pandemic have not so much caused the outbreak as uncovered a phenomenon that was already occurring undetected. Unexplained paediatric hepatitis is not new. It's just that the pre-pandemic cases occurred sporadically in a way that wouldn't raise alarm bells or prompt public health investigations. But the sudden spike in adenovirus cases in a short period of time, just as a population, young children with little or no immunity, began socialising more, led to a clustering effect. All of a sudden, case rates per 100,000 were far above average compared to previous years, and for the first time, resources were targeted into unravelling the cause of this mystery hepatitis. It is the first time AAV2 has been pinpointed as a potential cause of disease, although work is ongoing to confirm the hypothesis and understand better the mechanisms. Even a 20% spike in type 1 diabetes diagnoses among children under 14 during the pandemic, which largely predated COVID infections in this age group, has been linked by scientists to reduced exposure to other viruses believed to have a protective effect against the onset of the disease. The hypothesis ties in with evidence that new cases of type 1 diabetes peak annually in February and September in line with theories that seasonal viruses can trigger the disease by damaging the cells which produce insulin. Studies of gut microbes suggest a yin and yang interplay, 
where some viruses appear to defend against type 1 diabetes, while others increase the risk. As far as understanding the pandemic's non-COVID viral legacy goes, we may be just getting started. This article is by Helen McArdle. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 15th of August 2022, from the sports section, Ange Postelikoglu predicts pretty hectic end to summer transfer window as Celtic still active. By David Irvin, Ange Postelikoglu has insisted Celtic are still active in the transfer market as he predicted a pretty hectic final few weeks of the window. Ahead of the thumping win over Kilmarnock, the Celtic boss confirmed he's still looking to strengthen one or two areas of his squad. And he also admitted out-of-favour players could leave Parkhead in a busy closing period to the summer transfer window. The Celtic boss has already completed permanent deals for Cameron Carter-Vickers, Jota and Dyson Maeda this summer. He also added Alexandra Bernabei, Aaron Mui, Ben Segrist and Moritz Jens to his Celtic squad. But he had hinted there could be another couple of incomings, as well as outgoings, at Celtic Park in the coming weeks. In his press call before the Kilmarnock win, Postecoglou explained, In terms of incomings, we are still active. There's one or two areas I would like to bring in, but there has to be the right sort of players. We are definitely still active and looking at what options may be available. In general, I think this transfer window is going to be pretty hectic in the last couple of weeks. I suggest there could be some opportunities there for us, and in terms of outgoings, there are players who aren't getting a lot of opportunities. The Celtic boss was also quizzed on possible moves for Mikey Johnson and Albina Yeti after links with exits this summer. He said, I am not having discussions with anyone on a daily basis on what their future should be. That's really up to them. I am not one to try to convince people to stay and I am not going to persuade anyone to go. But the reality is that some people will get less less opportunities and if that's not sufficient for them, then they can explore other opportunities. And the article is by David Darwin. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 15th of August 2022, from the sports section, Andy Butchart hopes it will be third time lucky at European Championships in Munich. This article is an exclusive by Susan Ecclestaff. For so many athletes this summer, the thought of a third major championship in the space of just over a month is daunting. For Andy Butchart, however, it is exactly what he wants. The World Athletics Championships and the Commonwealth Games have come and gone. Now, the one remaining chance for Butchart to get his hands on a much-coveted medal this season is at this week's European Championships in Munich. While it may be difficult, the 30-year-old believes that instead of fatigue setting in, he's building towards his best performance. This year has been hard, but I'm in good shape going into these Europeans, says Butchart, and I want to be on the podium and join those other Scottish athletes who are doing so well, especially Jake Whiteman, who I feel is King of Scotland at the moment. Butchart has faced numerous obstacles this year. Firstly, injuries severely disrupted his pre-season training, before suffering a bout of Covid just weeks before the World Championships. He failed to progress through the 5,000m heats at the World Championship, before finishing 7th in the 10,000m final at the Commonwealth Games, but he hopes this week will be the pinnacle of his season. 
It's been a tough time, but professional sports isn't easy for anybody. Everyone has struggles, and so it's about how you deal with it, Butchart says. I believe this this was going to be a big year in terms of hopefully winning a medal, but the injury hindered me in, the, in that I've not been able to build the base I'd have ideally wanted to. Each week makes such a difference though, and I'm still in an upward trajectory, so hopefully that continues into the Europeans. I'm fit. I showed that in the 10k at Birmingham. I'm never completely satisfied, but if I look at the bigger picture, it was my first Commonwealth Games and I ran well despite having had an injury and Covid the week before. I expect an unbelievable result when really, everything is pointing towards that not happening. But there's no point being there if you think you're going to lose. Butchart has an added incentive to do well in Munich. He's a three-time British champion at 5,000 metres, but this could well be his last big race at the distance. The Stirling man has already dipped his toe into the 10,000 metres, and the longer distances is the direction in which his career is moving. There was actually a bit of a mix-up with the Europeans. I wanted to do the 10k, but it's worked out I'm doing the 5k, he said. Knowing this could well be my last 5k at a championships definitely makes me want to do something in this race. I'll be moving up, and whether it's moving on from the tracker or the road, or or what, I'm not quite sure yet. I'd probably be a bit more confident running the 10k at the Europeans, but that doesn't at all mean that I'm not confident going into the 5k. My training has been more geared towards the longer distances, so I'm stronger than I have been, but not as fast. But I'm in good shape, and I've tweaked my training to suit the shorter distance, so I'm feeling good. Butchart has been well supported by partner and fellow runner Lindsay Sharp, as well as their baby Max. And it is through Sharp that Butchart became friends with former Rangers captain Richard Goff, who has become something of a father figure to him. When Lindsay and I moved to San Diego a few years ago, we didn't have any friends, but Lindsay is in with the Rangers Football Club, and someone said to us that Richard Goff lives in San Diego, so we should reach out, he says. He invited us over for dinner, and we all just hit it off, so every weekend we go to his house for dinner and him and his partner became almost like a second mum and dad to Lindsay and I. We speak every week, and they have a room in their house for us any time we go to America. He's really like family now. He's the pinnacle of an athlete in a lot of ways, and he's very black and white. If you're not in good shape, he would tell you to go and sort it out, but then if you run well, he's the first person to text. He's a lovely guy, and just a really good person to be around. And that article was an exclusive by Susan Eaglestaff. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 15th of August 2022, from the Voices section, Alison Rabbit, Sturgeon and Co, enough attention seeking at the fringe, get back to the D job, by Senior Politics and Features writer Alison Rabbit. Politics begins a return to normal today when Sir Keir Stammer reveals how Labour would tackle the energy bill crisis. Spoiler. Freeze the cap at current level, £1,971. You might wonder why it's taking so long to announce the policy. Well, Sir Keir has been on holiday. Then he had a VIG, very important gig, at the Edinburgh Fringe. Every politician who's anyone has been hanging out in Edinburgh. Keir Starmer, Nicola Sturgeon, Anna Sarwar, Ruth Davidson, Angela Rayner, Jeremy Corbyn, Jess Phillips, just a few of those lining up to show the wittier side of themselves. What used to be a handful of aspiring performers has become a stampede. 
Some may see this as a sign of a healthy democracy at ease with itself. For others, it is a case of attention-seeking, to use a phrase of the moment, going too far. You won't find the media complaining about the stories generated, including Liz Truss asking Scotland's First Minister how to get into vogue, what Scottish Labour leader Anna Sauer thinks Boris Johnson should do next, P, explosive deleted off and do something else. Angela Rayner's attitude to Indy Ref 2, wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. And Sir Keir's nickname for Boris Johnson, the bull, explosive deleted. Nicola Sturgeon enjoyed her appearance so much, she was back for seconds on Saturday, this time with Times Radio. She took swipes at Boris Johnson, a disgrace to the office, and Liz Trust, again, for calling the FM an attention seeker. A bit silly, said Miss Sturgeon. She also met Basil Brush, who tweeted a picture with the caption, Two small feisty gingers together. Boom, boom. The politics events have been well attended. One audience member did a recording of the, the For The Many podcast with Ian Dale and Jackie Smith said the queue was like something out of a comic book convention. So such events are popular, tick, and relatively newsworthy, tick. For politicians, the audience with format is just another way of communicating with the public. And anyway, what is the harm in showing a lighter side of politics, particularly after the last few years? Fair enough, but there is another side. There is the risk of politicians becoming too relaxed and saying something they shouldn't. Swearing might fit the mood of the room in a sweaty afternoon in Edinburgh, but in cold, hard print the next day, it looks childish and OTT. There's a line, besides, between being amusing and appearing flippant. Some politicians, when you see them in action in Edinburgh, clearly think they're natural-born stand-ups when, as any professional comic will tell you, it takes years of slog to make something so difficult look easy. If you're wooden at the dispatch box, you're not going to appear any more relaxed on a stage. See Keir Starmer. There are exceptions. Gordon Brown was thought to have Keir Starmer in mind when he spoke recently about the need for urgent action on soaring prices. Time and tide wait for no one, growled the former Prime Minister. Neither do crises. They don't take holidays. He could scarcely have a go at Starmer over Edinburgh because Brown, too, has appeared on the fringe this year. In his case, with the stand-up Matt Ford and his political party show, Brown, much to the delight of Brian Logan, the Guardian reviewer, was a comedy revelation. He told us stories about Berlusconi fretting about his makeup as the global economy burned, about Mandela's illicit drinking at his 90th birthday party, about the differences between Putin and Alex Salmond. When is a dictator who will stop at nothing? The point about the multitasking Brown is that he made his fringe appearance and put forward a plan to deal with the fuel bill crisis within days of each other. Brown is also retired from day-to-day politics. He doesn't have constituents to serve and represent. Are those politicians who appear in the fringe taking time off to be there? Hard to imagine someone waiting for help from their MP or MSP would be too pleased to see them on stage at Edinburgh. If the country is, as every forecast says, Facing a dreadful six months to a year ahead, what is any politician doing faffing about in Edinburgh? At the risk of sounding po-faced, there is a general point to be made here. If the UK has learned anything from Boris Johnson, it is to beware joker politicians. 
One day a buffoon and have I got news for you, and the next day a nay proroguing parliament. The fringe still has two weeks to run, and it can do so happily without politicians. Back to the day job, everybody. And that article was by Alison Rowett. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 15th of August 2022, from the Voices section, E. McWhorter, has the energy crisis finally convinced Scots to go it alone? By columnist E. McWhorter, article first published on the 14th of August. It's coming yet for all that. Hopes are rising amongst nationalists that the cost of living crisis could be the last gasp for the Union. Scotland is a cold country and energy costs are of acute interest to Scottish voters, not least because Scotland is an energy rich nation sitting in an ocean of hydrocarbons and renewables. Yet bills of £4,000-£5,000, pick a number and double it, are about to plunge more than half the working population into fuel poverty, according to Scottish Power. A humanitarian disaster is what Energy Action Scotland calls it. OK, there is never not a crisis in the view of campaign groups like EAS, but this time their alarmism is justified. The consequences, not just for those in benefits, but for the vast majority of working families in Scotland, are so extreme that no one has yet taken it seriously. Surely something will be done. Yet the only people who can sort this crisis out, the UK government, are fiddling while Scotland prepares to freeze. No one is in charge while elderly Conservative Party members choose our next Prime Minister. After Boris Johnson, a politician loathed by Scottish voters, his likely replacement looks to be even worse. Indeed, if Liz Truss were trying to deliver Scotland to the independence cause, she could hardly do better. Dismissing Nicola Sturgeon as an attention seeker was normal political knockabout, but to ruminations on the energy crisis and her attention to address hardship through tax cuts rather than handouts is almost guaranteed to revive bitter memories of Margaret Thatcher. Her headstrong free market policies destroyed the Conservative Party in Scotland. Her successors could destroy the UK. It's not as if Labour is offering much alternative. Sir Keir Starmer is missing in action on holiday, having said nothing of significance about the crisis and how to tackle it. Gordon Brown has had to step into the breach and call for the freezing of the energy price cap, tax rises and nationalisation of energy suppliers who cannot or will not keep prices affordable. Brown's scheme seems modelled on the 2008 financial crisis, after which he received widespread acclaim for organising a G20 financial stimulus and for nationalising delinquent UK banks like Royal Bank of Scotland. There had been no response from Mr Starmer Possibly because Brown's remark that time and tide wait for no one is seen as an oblique dig at the current Labour leader's idleness. As for Mr Starmer's deputy, Angela Rayner, at the Edinburgh Festival, she appeared to have nothing much to say about the crisis either, preferring to scold Scots for not voting Labour and condemning the UK to perpetual Tory rule. The irony of saying that in Scotland obviously escaped her. So... This is, this is what can only be described as a crisis of leadership in UK politics on the eve of what promises to be a winter, not just of discontent, but cold fury. People are taking matters into their own hands. Non-payment campaigns are proliferating. Commentators like the ubiquitous Martin Lewis of Money Supermarket are warning of civil unrest on the scale of the poll tax riots in the early 1990s. 
There will be demonstrations outside power companies. Enough is enough marches and civil disobedience. In times of trouble, people are prepared to look for radical solutions. Perhaps this will finally convince Scottish voters that the UK is sinking fast and that it's time to take to the, life- the lifeboats. Look at comparable nations like Norway with its massive oil wealth safety tucked away in its sovereign wealth fund. Norway is now paying 80% of the excess cost of energy bills for its citizens. Scotland has prodigious resources of oil and gas, and yet is powerless to do anything. Indeed, the latest conspiracy theory has it that England is already seizing Scottish renewable energy. It is claimed that 40% of the energy from the immense Berwick Bank wind farm, when it's completed later this decade, will be funneled direct to Blythe, England. It's Scotland's oil all over again. This is clearly fertile ground for an independence campaign, but it would require a leader who is capable of making Scots look beyond the immediate problems of disengagement from the UK, pensions, deficits, currency, borders, and see the sunny uplands as a Nordic powerhouse like Denmark or Norway. And it has to be said that Nicola Sturgeon doesn't sound like a revolutionary leader on the brink of achieving national liberation. Last week, she was again caught ruminating over her own destiny rather than her nation's. The First Minister told an Edinburgh Fringe event that she wasn't sure she would even lead the SNP into the next Scottish Parliament elections. She said she was still up for the challenge, but it's a funny way of motivating the troops. Ms Sturgeon has repeatedly said that, at the age of 52, she's looking for another big job after being First Minister, though she has never specified what that might be. Is she intending to fit the task of independence somewhere neatly into her career path? Well, she better get a move on. The SNP has failed to answer the big questions which everyone knows will dominate the independence campaign if and when it happens. Unlike in 2014, there will have to be a hard border with England since the UK is now out of the European Union. The whole policy of independence in Europe was premised in Scotland and England remaining in the single market. The project of a common currency with the rest of the UK needs radical revision. Scotland's nominal deficit of around 8% has not been addressed. Nor indeed, Scotland's future in Europe. Should Scotland wait five years or so to be admitted to the European Union, or opt to join EFTA like Norway? In 2014, Scots had the benefit of the 2013 Independence White Paper, a 670-page manual for independence which raised and tried to answer all these questions. There is no such comprehensive document now. Instead, we get Darius Swinney on GMS, day by day, droning on about how Scotland needs more money from the UK to pay for public sector pay claims and social support packages. Scotland already receives 20% more spending per head than in England, and the Scottish Government has its own tax raising powers but somehow it is always dependent on Westminster's largesse. This is not the way to inspire a nation to stand on its own two feet. Where is the vision, the self-confidence? Where is the campaign? We're expected to believe that there will be an independence referendum next year, Supreme Court permitting, in the midst of runaway inflation, war in Europe, and the worst energy crisis since the 1970s. It strains the credulity of all but the most committed Sturgeon fans to think she means it. The Scottish Government seems to hope there's a wave of revulsion at the conduct of the next Tory leader, plus a vacuum in the UK opposition will automatically convert Scots to the cause of independence. 
it won't. Independence is a revolutionary project and needs revolutionary leadership. History doesn't just happen, it has to be made. And that was an opinion piece by E. McWhorter. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 15th of August 2022. From the Voices section, The Herald Diary, Getting Hot and Bothered Over Jerry Sadovitz. Berlon Jackson, Outrageous and offensive classical comedian Jerry Sadovitz has been cancelled for being outrageous and offensive. The Pleasants in Edinburgh dropped a second performance of his act after an initial show shocked some audience members. The theatre clearly didn't realise what a Sadovich gig entails, which is understandable. After all, he's only been performing his sixth stick for 40 odd years, some of them very odd indeed. Perhaps the Pleasants management spotted Sadovich's top hat and concluded he was a vaudeville tribute act. Some comedians and fans have defended the jaundiced jokester. Filmmaker Paul Snug points out, complaining that Jerry Sadovitz is offensive is like moaning that the vindaloo is too spicy. In the drink, an inspirational thought to start the week from our reader Nicola Bruce, who says, that first cup of coffee really wakes you up on a Monday morning, especially if you spill it on your lap. Termination time. The gentrified geriatric population of Scotland can often be found loafing around on exceedingly large boats during the summer hauls. Occasionally, they become concerned they will not survive the experience, reveals reader William Gibson. He tells us the Balmoral cruise ship recently arrived at the port of Visby in Sweden. An imposing shed-like edifice came into view on the quayside, and it immediately had the senior citizens on deck gulping nervously. And the name of the building that inspired such terror? God's Terminal. Is this a Swedish meaning goods terminal, we wonder? Or perhaps everyone who slips in mortal coil ends up in Sweden? There are worse options. Novice Anono. Much refreshed John Hodgart from Ardrossen has returned from an enjoyable holiday in Arran, although he admits he will not be recommending the hotel, which was advertising for a new member of staff with the missive Chef urgently required, no experience necessary. The diary hopes such messages don't become commonplace, especially when it comes to hospitals advertising for new heart surgeons. Wipe out. A diary mention of Andrex Toilet Roll reminds Peter Mackay, Furkin Craig, near Adimore, of the vicious old days of body buffing, when the poor posteriors of Scotland had, a, had to deal with the dreaded Isal. Like a codgy-based Glasgow Razor gang, Isal always cut up rough, leaving its victims begging for mercy. This toilet paper with teeth did have its plus points, says Peter. It was fundamental for making paper and comb music. Amusing, meaty, musing. Confused reader Laura Jones said, It's an argument between two vegetarians called a beef. And that was today's Herald Diary, brought to you by Lauren Jackson. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.